This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies on the New Books Network. My name is Diana Dehanova, and I will be your host today. Today I'm speaking with Dr. David Rainbow, a historian of modern Europe and Russia at the University of Houston, about his 2019 edited volume, Ideologies of Race, Imperial Russia and the Soviet Union in a Global Context. Ideologies of Race is an interdisciplinary collection of new studies from a diverse array of scholars who reevaluate the meaning of race in Russia and the Soviet Union and explore their intersection between ideas about race and racializing practices. Dr. Rainbow, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks for the invitation. So to begin, could you talk a little bit about your academic background and your areas of research? Sure. I have an undergraduate degree from a small liberal arts college, Fresno Pacific University. Uh, and then I did a couple of graduate degrees, uh, an MA in European intellectual history at Drew University. And my PhD is from NYU, where I studied Russian and European history. Mm-hmm. I uh, got interested in, in Russia in college uh, when I had a chance to travel there for a semester and kind of got hooked. Uh, and then by the time I was in graduate school, the critical language scholarship program sent me to Siberia to study Russian. And uh, I came upon my interest in Siberian history while I was there visiting some local historical museums. Um, and that topic, uh, which I did my PhD on, on Siberian regionalism, led to this race project because a lot of the characters I was studying, um, I I came across their own discussions of what it meant to be Siberian and the extent to which that had some kind of racial implication. I always tell my Russian language students uh, to go to Siberia or to go somewhere other than St. Petersburg and Moscow. I think you get a much more kind of well-rounded experience. Yeah, that was that was definitely my experience. I've lived in a couple of uh, cities other than Moscow and St. Petersburg, and I always really enjoyed it. Uh, and now this is an edited volume. So can you talk a bit about the origins of the book project and the contributors uh, and how it was structured? Sure. When I was a, a postdoc at Columbia at the Harriman Institute, I was uh, revising my dissertation and um, trying to figure out what to do with the, the the material that I had on Siberia and race and um, thought 
I would like to organize some sort of conference or workshop on the topic of race in Russia. And um, so together with the Jordan Center at NYU and Columbia, I, I invited a bunch of people. Uh, it was kind of a, you know, a, a dream list for me of all the people I wanted to, <laughs> to work with and, and meet and, and talk about the topic with. And almost all of them came and we did a, a, a two-day workshop of pre-circulated papers, um, including the, the papers that came from outside the Russian field. So the original concept, which, which uh, I retained for the book, was to try to have scholars who have recently written about the topic of race in Russia and the Soviet Union in the same room with scholars of race in other parts of the world, uh, particularly parts of the world where the, the literature on the history of race was more developed or had been, uh, you know, discussed for longer. So these were people from fields in American history and uh, German history, Latin American history. Um, and uh, we also wanted to kind of get a, a wide range of disciplinary views on it. So that was that was kind of the origin of it, was this two-day workshop uh, that was um, produced the most of the papers that are in the book. The book uh, ended up being organized according to four thematic sections. So this was based on, um, you know, the papers that ended up being selected for the book and they kind of fell into what I saw as, as four broad thematic sections. One, the, the first section has to do with the question of Russian exceptionalism, uh, Soviet exceptionalism, uh, the extent to what the extent to which, um, the history of race in Russia is exceptional. Uh, so we, we consider that in the first section, the second section, um, I call limits to universalism. And that really kind of means a couple of things. It, in the imperial case, um, the, the paper in that section considers the limits to race becoming a predominant category in the empire for organizing human difference uh, because it never uh, did become a predominant category. Um, and then in the Soviet case, the, the limit to universalism was uh, really kind of the, the limit to Soviet socialism's ability to remake people entirely into Soviet citizens. In other words, uh, you know, race shows up in the Soviet case as a, as a limiting factor to this ideal of creating a polity that completely transcends human ethnographic difference. Then there's a section on, on the theme of mixing, of um, racial mixing, both in the empire and in the Soviet case. Um, and then the last section is called Russia and the Globe. And it kind of underscores some of the themes that come up throughout really all of the papers to one degree or another, which is that race in Russia is 
illuminated when it's considered in the context of race and other parts of, of the world. So it's not only c- comparative. I mean, the, the entire volume, I would say, is not, not simply a comparative study of different uh, parts of the world, but it's, it's really a story of mutual influences of Russia and other parts of the world when it came to race. And that's kind of highlighted in that last section. And then kind of as a way of making several of these, I think, contributions to the conversation, each section includes a chapter on Imperial Russia, on the Soviet Union, and on another part of the world. Um, And the, the third chapter in each section is by a scholar from outside the Russian field who's kind of responding to and developing the the arguments that uh, the Russian scholars are making. Uh, And we'll go into a little bit more detail about some of these things that you're um, uh, giving an overview on later um, in the interview. Uh, Could you talk a little bit more about where you would place or situate the book and the kind of existing scholarship on race in Russia and the USSR? The, the starting point for the the book is the idea that yeah that race has been difficult to study in the case of Russia and the Soviet Union for I'd say maybe at least two reasons some conceptual and some historical so the 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 Western concept of race um, has very often been taken as a kind of a norm um, not you know, in a, in a uh, conceptual way. So, you know, the, the cases of 20th century Germany, the case of the United States with institutionalized slavery and the Jim Crow, um, uh, often South Africa, like these very clear and distinct, um, um, you know, segregationist or apartheid countries have been taken as conceptual norms. And that, I think, has made it difficult to figure out where Russia sits, because it doesn't, it doesn't look like those countries um, on a number of metrics. Um, So it makes the concept of race, I, I think, difficult to apply, say, to the Russian and Soviet cases. Uh, I think the historical reasons um, why it's been difficult to, to study, um, you know, probably include the very real and conspicuous differences between Russia and other countries. Um, first in in the 19th century case, the fact that race was not codified legally as a category for um, you know, understanding, let alone kind of separating different populations within the empire. And then during the Cold War, the differences between the Soviet Union and many other parts of the world were uh, highlighted uh, because of the, the real ideological differences between socialism and capitalist countries. Um, um, are there uh, some aspects of the prevailing, particular aspect of the prevailing understanding of the subjects that the contributors are seeking to challenge? Yeah, I think 
there are uh, the way that we kind of conceived of it, there were, there were two broad positions that have been taken most frequently uh, in the literature that the, the book seeks to address and, and challenge. One is that one is that race isn't relevant in Russia uh, for some of the reasons that I've, that I've already uh, said, and maybe we could talk a little bit more about it as we go along, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, is to say that it, it's a, it's a concept, it's a, a category that doesn't pertain there. And it, it doesn't help us to understand Russia and the Soviet Union as, as a result of that. The other, and, and the, the book argues against that. The book argues that, in fact, um, looking at the history of race in Russia and the Soviet Union does illuminate a number of important questions and a number of important problems that can't be illuminated otherwise or uh, look differently if not looking at the history of race. But the, then the other, the other position is almost kind of a, it's a distinctive position, although I think they have some things in common. And that position is that race in Russia is the same as everywhere else. So there have been, you know, in some comparative scholarship on the history of race, Russia gets kind of folded into this global story of how race developed and evolved and manifested um, that's almost indistinguishable from other cases. So then, you know, in that story, the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union end up being a kind of, you know, nascent Nazi Germany or something like that, mm-hmm. which the book also uh, differs from and, you know, doesn't take that tack. So in, in a way, we're kind of trying to, the, the collection of contributions is an effort to, um, it, it's not a splitting of the difference, that's the wrong metaphor, but it's, it's, a, it's an other way of understanding how race is important. So trying to register particularity without um, falling into exceptionalism. Mm-hmm. Sort of the perennial challenge in uh, studying Russia, really, in, in any... In yes. Any, yeah. yeah. Um, now, this is an interdisciplinary volume. Um, so could you talk a little bit about uh, some of the disciplines and research methodologies that are represented? Yeah. So there are historians, there are literary scholars, a a literary scholar, there are anthropologists. um, And the, the approach is, you know, overall, the, the approach is historical to try to understand how these questions look at different points in time and how, how we might get a kind of a sense of how it changed over time. And, what some of the um, kind of triggers for those changes were, if there were inflection points and so on. Um, but the but the methodologies vary. I mean, there are there are histories of um, kind of the discursive use of the term race, so almost conceptual histories or um, intellectual histories. There are. Uh, several chapters that are based largely on oral histories um, taken from, uh, you know, former Soviet citizens from different parts of different parts of the Soviet Union, um, Central Asia, uh, as well as Central Russia. 
and also oral histories uh, in the case of one chapter taken from uh, students who had come from various countries in Africa to study in Moscow during the 1960s and 70s and uh, what their experiences of studying there were. So oral history uh, makes a makes an important contribution. Uh, there are anthropological uh, studies that go, go all the way up to the 1990s and uh, more contemporary uh, time period. And there are also maybe another uh, methodological approach is is a, a real explicit kind of international frame of trying to understand uh, how the uses of race, the thinking about race, uh, policies inflected by race were affected from by an explicitly international context. So there's one chapter that takes kind of the Pacific world as its frame of reference, uh, another that takes um, you know, Cold War, Soviet, um, and African relations as its context. Uh, we'll go back to the question of um, pedagogy uh, with these subjects, but I think um, because of the interdisciplinarity and variety, this would actually be a really great uh, classroom text for studying these topics. I think so, yeah. Um, now, you touched on this already, that one of the key challenges to understanding race in Russia <clears throat> is actually defining the parameters of the term. Uh, so the following is, I'm quoting from your introduction, uh, race was not codified in law. The concept of race had important consequences for how human differences, how human difference was understood by many imperial subjects and Soviet citizens. Uh, so could you talk a little bit more about the evolution of the concept of race uh, and specifically its evolution in Russian and Soviet history? And what has traditionally been the connection between race and nationality and ethnicity, uh, which is nationalness and narodness uh, for mm -hmm. Russian-speaking listeners? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the the evolution is the evolution obviously is is important to what we're trying to do, and you know one of the points that comes out I think pretty strongly in the collection is that there's a, a remarkably similar timing with respect to thinking about race, arguing about what it means, trying to define its parameters uh, in Russia and in other Western European countries. So um, Vera Toltz's chapter in particular talks a lot about this and points out a number of the ways uh, in which you can't really, you can't isolate Russia from this global discourse on race, not for any kind of, you know, a priori, like methodological commitment of trying to uh, argue against exceptionalism, but simply because of the fact that there's all kinds of um, international conversation that's going on about the topic that Russian theorists and ethnographers are reading Western European ethnographers. Um, and our book picks up really in the middle of the 19th century but it's, it's probably worth noting on this point that there are other scholars recently who have, who have taken this conversation back into the 18th century. So Carl Hall, for example, or uh, Yuri Sloskin have talked about how in the 18th century there is, there's already this emerging um, effort to try to understand, you know, uh, tribe and and race and nation 
um, groups of people in these kinds of you know proto racialized ways and and the the influence goes both ways so it all the way back into the 18th century so a lot of the the russian thinkers who are talking about that are in conversation with european anthropologists and so on but a lot of the european anthropologists are writing about russia as one of the one of the, the you know they very often saw it almost as a laboratory for understanding how races emerge and evolve and uh, come to be. Uh, and they, they talked a lot about Siberia in particular. And, you know, Eurasia was, was kind of a, a center for understanding that, not only because of the, you know, theories at the time about the kind of Caucasian race um, as being a, a important for the emergence of different kinds of races, but also... Um, contemporary life in Eurasia where lots of different people were living in close proximity and intermarrying and, you know, with, with, from the Western European perspective, which with much less concern or thought as to, you know, what their people group was about. Um, So as compared to Western European countries who are colonizing abroad and seeing these, you know, what they saw as wholly different people groups in Eurasia, that was an interesting place for 18th century ethnographers. So I guess the point is that there was from the beginning of the story of modern race thinking, there was already this integral relationship between Russia and a lot of other parts of the world where they were thinking about race. Um, I mean, I, the, the second thing I'd say is that the, the connection uh, as to kind of how race and nationality and narodnost relate to one another, um, the connection among the categories, those three categories uh, in particular for understanding human difference is in the Russian case, a uh, deep and complicated. So there, Yuri Slovskin talks about who, isn't a contributor to the volume, but uh, elsewhere talks about this kind of terminological disarray that exists when one tries to disentangle those concepts from one another um, in the 18th century, in the 19th century. Uh, Vera Toltz in our volume uh, refers to that cluster of terms as a, a single integrated conceptual field. So a part of the argument, the historical argument in the book is that the distinction among those terms that very often serves as a starting point, a kind of methodological starting point for contemporary scholars, it, if taken too rigidly, is already going to um, make it difficult to see what's going on because those, those concepts as analytical concepts can't be uh, sort of disentangled from the historical context, because then you go back and you, you, know, you see so-and-so talking about race, um, and so then they get slotted in the kind of race science category, and, and somebody else is talking about ethnicity, and what several of the contributors of the volume are at pains to show is that... Uh, there was very little clear conceptual thinking 
with regard to those three concepts in the 19th century. As time goes on, and particularly when you get into the 20th century and the Soviet period, then there is an increasing um, tendency to try to disentangle those concepts. And so biology and culture get taken apart and they're, they, they're, you know, p- people try to keep them apart. Um, but that's even, that, that's never a complete process. So the disentangling that, that serves very often as a starting point for scholarly inquiry of, you know, looking at a topic through the lens of race or through the lens of nationality, as opposed to ethnicity, for instance, um, is not really ever something that you can find. Uh, It's even difficult to disentangle the concept of race, as a couple of our authors show, from the category of class. So the Soviets had a, a difficult time isolating those two concepts. So that's a part of the overall argument is that uh, it, it doesn't mean that they're all the same. It doesn't mean that there aren't boundaries, but in the process of our efforts to understand where those boundaries lie, uh, we tried to give a great deal of attention to where those boundaries were um, at any given point in time. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Uh, now, my next question has to do with sort of an inevitable aspect of the history of race in Russia with uh, culture and literature, which is the legacy of Alexander Pushkin. Uh, which you mentioned in your introduction, um, most scholars of, and students of Russian literature will know that he was a descendant of an African prince. Uh, could you talk a bit about how the cultural perception and the ideological deployment of Pushkin's legacy contributed to common misperceptions about Russian conceptualizations of race? Yeah, that's, of course, an, an interesting story, not only because of the connection to this topic, but of course, Pushkin, you know, uh, is is a, a fascinating character um, in any case. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, he, he's often understood in Russia um, and, you know, f- including in the 19th century and from a number of visitors from abroad, um, including some African-Americans who traveled to Russia and, um, you know, kind of encountered the story of Pushkin or the, you know, the cultural presence of Pushkin and cited it as evidence of Russia's exceptionality. So, you know, he's, um, Pushkin is distinctive and unique. And I think, you know, I think it, it does serve to point to the particular ways that racial belonging was fluid in Russia. Um, but I, I think that pointing to Pushkin isn't an explanation of how race was thought of in Russia, right? So it's not the it's not the sort of um, Rosetta Stone or the 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 typical example. Um, I mean, it's it's a great starting point for 
for talking about what the particularities of thinking about race and integrating different groups of people into the empire were, which, you know, already kind of maybe anticipates the, the pedagogy question that you mentioned a second ago. Yeah. Um, could you go into a little bit more detail about the phenomenon of um, this uh, drive in the early Soviet ideology to establish a global reputation for colorblindness and anti-racism? And how did that change over the course of Soviet history? Mm-hmm. The Yeah, the Soviet commitment to colorblindness was first a, a function of communism's universal aspirations. It was mm-hmm. a, it was a function of the, um, the goal of ordering a society in such a way that the hitherto, you know, the, the divisions that had hitherto organized so many societies in the world would be transcended. And that included race and ethnic difference. Um, and so, so it was, yeah, it was a function of an ideological commitment to universalism. Uh, it was also, I mean, one way that it changed was that the idea of colorblindness or the idea that the claim that the Soviet Union had transcended the racial animosity that characterized so many other countries in the 20th century uh, ended up being a very valuable and I'd say pretty pointed weapon during the Cold War uh, as a way of differentiating itself from the West. Uh, as, you know, it became more and more pointed in the 1930s as you had fascist regimes rising in Western Europe. Uh, and then, of course, it remained very useful after the Second World War um, in the the conflict, the cold conflict with the United States. It was also a useful kind of recruiting tool for um, engaging with third world politics that was used used a lot. So that I, I would say that it, it changed it changed from it, it was in place in 1917 uh, and in 1922 with the establishment of the Soviet Union, it was in place as an ideological commitment um, to be deployed then in very specific ways later in the century. Now, as a number of scholars have have written about, including several in my collection, you know, the extent to which colorblindness was ever fully realized, of course, is is not that's not really the the main question. It it, it wasn't a, a colorblind society um, in any total way, but the the absence of the codification of racial segregation in law and named as such um, always remained as one of the kind of points of pride, I would say, in Soviet patriotism. And building on that, um, you write also, uh, I think, in the introduction that one of the key questions about the history of race in the USSR is, quote, how to account for state-sanctioned racist practice in an anti-racist state, right? Um, so what are some of the solutions that are posed by the contributors to this kind of conundrum? Mm-hmm. One of the, so the, the solutions to to this problem of having to account for these, these two things that conflict. I mean, one of, one of the ways that it's explained is that there was a, 
a good deal of pressure from below, so to speak, um, for maintaining racial distinction among populations in the country. So this comes up in particular with um, the recruitment of college students from Africa and other non-white parts of the world to come study in Russia, uh, which was all, of course, a, a flagship project in this colorblind you know, society building and really global revolution that transcended race and ethnicity and nationality. Um, but then when, when people started coming to Russia to study, then there, as, as um, Annika Walka shows in her chapter, there was, she talked to people who, who were there, who were students, and, you know, asked them about, like, what explains the fact that uh, there was a good deal of hostility against these students studying in Moscow, and there was a, a good deal of discrimination, and there was a good deal of, you know, kind of racist animosity towards them in even though this project that had brought them there was, as I said, a, a kind of flagship of to demonstrate to the world how colorblind the Soviet Union was. And it it turns out that that it people couldn't get over their prejudices uh, and that, you know, human difference along racial lines, like human difference along uh, a lot of other lines, uh, got used as a way of um, kind of negotiating for privileges in some cases. So in some cases it was, you know, uh, the foreign students were getting better dormitories. And so the Russian students uh, would take it out on them, uh, things like that. So that uh, that's what I would characterize as a kind of, you know, a pressure from below to resist um or, or at, that served as an obstacle to the realization of this anti-racist ideal. Um, but I think there was also something that was um, maybe uh, more fundamental to the, the state project as a whole. I mean, Marxism held to a civilizational and historical hierarchy. Uh, people had to go through a process of development to sufficiently kind of spread the revolution. And that was the premise of these recruitment drives to get students from the Middle East and from Africa and from Latin America to come study in the Soviet Union, you know, learn uh, about the world from a Soviet perspective, and then go back and transport Soviet style uh, revolutionary ideology abroad. And, so that the, the whole premise of that colorblind project was that people needed to come to the Soviet Union to get adequately kind of educated and, you know, culturally developed so that they could uh, go to these, you know, underdeveloped uh, regions of the world and bring them up to speed in terms of the spread of revolution. So, you know, it, it happened that the the people, a lot of the people coming from this quote unquote underdeveloped parts of the world were non-white. And so there was this kind of, I think, 
um, you know, association between the, the, of course, the Soviets didn't quite use this term, but the, the civilizing project of Soviet communism with um, racial difference. Uh, and there's also this history of um, Americans of color from the United States uh, in the early years, right, going to the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. which was used as a way to sort of say that uh, the Soviet Union had a superior way of life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and the, the idea there, too, was was to uh, serve as ambassadors. You know, they, right. they came to the Soviet Union and they were treated very well. And, you know, they kind of got they got the the royal treatment, so to speak, Um of being celebrities and these uh, American socialists who would come and uh, get treated very well. And then the idea was, and the, and it happened in many cases that they would kind of come back and serve as ambassadors to the to witnesses to the superiority mm-hmm. of the Soviet way of life. Uh, could you discuss your, your own contribution uh, to the volume, which is a, one, one of the chapters on racial mixing? Yeah, my my chapter uh, has to do with a relatively small group of Siberian regionalists. So these were activists from the middle of the 19th century, um, really a couple of generations of them into the 20th century and through the revolution in 1917, uh, who wanted, who advocated for and worked towards uh, developing Siberian autonomy. So they wanted Siberia to be more self-sufficient. They wanted to curtail economic, um, you know, the economic drain of Siberian resources that were going to benefit the center of the empire and, and so on. And one of the brand, this was not even their kind of main um, thrust, but one of the branches of their argument for the need to recognize Siberia as distinctive and autonomous from the rest of Russia was this ethnographic and racial branch. So what that meant was they initially made the case in their complaints to the, these complaints were leveled through the press um, in public, um, in some cases through, you know, conversations or uh, relationships with local administrators and and government officials and so on, uh, they made the case that the the hundreds years long settlement of Siberia with Russian criminals, but not just criminals, but, you know, peasants who didn't necessarily want to go, had resulted in a kind of deterioration of the the racial stock in Siberia. So, uh, you know, they use the term degenerate. They they talked about the the degeneration of Russian people in Siberia as a consequence of uh, partly this social engineering. So they were sending at one point um, Yadrensev, Nikolai Yadrensev says that, uh, that you know if the if the Russian empire weren't sending us the dregs of Russian society, we would be much farther ahead. So there's this idea that they were getting bad settlers to begin with, and then compounded with that, the, the influence of the less developed indigenous Siberian people, which included, you know, 
a lot of intermarrying and cultural sharing and just living in proximity um, had had resulted in this new degenerate Siberian race that was not equipped to govern itself, which they took as, um, you know, they took as catastrophic. This was Siberia ought to govern itself. It ought to be more culturally independent um, and maybe eventually politically independent, but it was not going to achieve that goal if it continued down this particular ethnographic route. And then something interesting, you know, and I was, I was first kind of struck by this argument from these people who were, you know, literally like the most patriotic Siberians in the entire empire. I mean, as they called themselves uh, uh, Siberian patriots, and they saw themselves as these great champions of Siberia and its distinctiveness and its uniqueness, um, almost in, I mean, they weren't nationalists in the way that we often use it, but, you know, they, they talked about the distinctiveness of Russian culture and Russian food and literature and all the things that, you know, national movements in the 19th century were busy uh, accumulating and kind of listing out as justifications for independence. Um, yet, the, all those characteristics, many of those characteristics that they were, they were outlining were negative characteristics. So m- my question was, you know, how, how is it that um, these Siberian patriots were kind of so down on their own people? And that the answer, the answer kind of surprised me. The answer that I found was that as, as the 19th century progressed, and in, in some cases as a consequence of some of their advocacy, but in other cases, through no, um, you know, the, through through no credit uh, to their own efforts, the Russian state started developing Siberia very rapidly with the Trans-Siberian Railroad and increased peasant settlement and more resources to develop industry there. You know, a lot of the things that the Siberian patriots had been interested in seeing, and at that point they switched their racial argument. Um, about mixing and degeneration to being about mixing and um, and progress, or in other words, the the racial mixing that they had observed and claimed was characteristic of Russia, they were now saying was the thing that was going to allow them to uh, become independent, and uh, and so the my interest in that that problem was trying to figure out how the concept of race for these social and cultural activists could so quickly go from being a negative characteristic to a positive characteristic. And my suggestion is that it's, it's an indication of how malleable, not only, you know, racial mixing was at the time. So people were in fact intermarrying um, and it, and didn't usually see that as a, a big deal. But the, the concept of race itself was malleable insofar as it could be, it could be used um, as, as a negative or a positive characteristic. Um, and so it, it's meant to kind of suggest that in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, we're still in this period in Russia where 
um, it's up for grabs the extent to which racial mixing is a bad thing or a good thing. Uh, I wanted to go back to this uh, notion of exceptionalism in the history of scholarship in Russia. Uh, what are some of the comparative and transnational perspectives that contributors find helpful in sort of pushing back against that idea and placing race in Russia into a global context? I'll, I'll give a, a couple examples from, from the book. There, one, I mean, the, obviously we have four contributors who are putting Russia uh, in this global context um, from outside the Russian field and reflecting on the extent to which the things that we are saying we're finding in the archives and in interviews and so on in, in Russian history uh, reflect the cases that they know uh, very well. And one of those cases uh, comes from Brazil. Uh, Barbara Weinstein is a, a professor at NYU, a historian of, of modern Brazil, and she writes about uh, a very similar regional ideology that emerged in Brazil among a kind of provincial area of Brazil where um, they they tried to make the argument that racial mixing was advantageous for their own uh, efforts to gain autonomy uh, and that it it was kind of uh, creating the creating of a new ethnographic or racial type was, was a benefit, and and that was a benefit to you know backward people. So people who, in the terms that they used at the time, right, that that people who are less developed than the metropolitan um, imperial center uh, could actually progress more rapidly through a process of mixing with indigenous populations. Uh, for and they had all kinds of you know justifications for that argument. And it was strikingly similar to some of the things that, that I found and, and some of the others found in their chapters. And so, you know, to, to me, that was very illuminating because what I had thought, even, even in my effort to try to put the story of the history of race uh, in Russia or, or to talk about the history of race in Russia, which doesn't always get talked about. So that was my effort at kind of trying to um, battle against this exceptionalist idea, um, I hadn't expected that there were uncannily similar arguments going on elsewhere. And those are not causally related. Um, uh, you know, Siberia and Northeastern Brazil were not in dialogue with, with each other, um, but it was happening at the same time. So there's a, a larger parallel development going on. So that those sorts of things I think are eliminating. There were also, uh, another example I'll give is from one of the Russian scholars, Susanna Lim, who wrote about a, uh, a Korean intellectual, uh, Yoon Chi Ho from the late 19th and early 20th century, who wrote about Russia as a racist empire um, from the perspective of Korea. And uh, he himself kind of was important for the pan-Asianist movement that was emerging um, in Japan and Korea and other places in East Asia at the time. And he had traveled to the United States and studied there. And then had he was very pro-Japanese, which was not true for every Korean at the time, obviously. 
and he was very anti-Russian. And his critique of Russian um, racism, which was based on his observation of how Russians in eastern Siberia treated the Koreans who lived there, was very clearly and explicitly informed by the things he had read and learned around the Pacific. And so there is a story of kind of not simply comparative history, but a story where it's really hard to understand uh, what's going on. Well, I I wouldn't say it's hard to understand. I would say that, that what's happening in Eastern Siberia looks very different from the perspective of, um, this Korean observer than it does if you're simply looking at Russian sources. What do you see as the key takeaways from this volume, not only for scholars of Russia and the Soviet Union working on race, but just for the study of the region as a whole? Uh, I mean, it. This this volume is certainly not the only volume to suggest this, but I think you know one of one of the key takeaways is is that Eurasia is connected to the rest of the world in all sorts of uh, all sorts of very influential ways, um, um, you know, economically in terms of trade, in terms of migration, uh, but also. Uh, in terms of ideologies and the movement of ideas and the transformation of ideas as they move from place to place. And, uh, you know, Russian Eurasia, Soviet Eurasia is, is no different in that regard. I mean, the influences and the connectivities go to the East, including across the Pacific uh, and obviously to the West and to the South. Um, I mean, hopefully the the book is a useful exercise in figuring out how to distinguish, as I said before, particularity of a historical region, which I think invites comparison and better understanding, uh, even if the better understanding is to complicate these, you know, irreducibly complicated global processes. Uh, to distinguish that particularity from exceptionalism, which, you know, can have the tendency to sometimes obscure connections. So I think, yeah, the, the connectivity across and across Eurasia and between Eurasia and other parts of the world, uh, I hope, is a, a big takeaway. Uh, what about takeaways for the classroom? How might some of the research uh, contribute to undergraduate curriculum design? in the Slavic field? I think, I think that it, I think that it will contribute to a lot of, you know, the, the really great scholarship in the, in the Slavic field um, that's been going on for a number of years. So, I mean, I, I guess I'll, I, I didn't assign my book in, in my class on the Russian empire. Um, you know, probably partly just because I uh, feel insecure about doing that, but uh, uh, but I, I think it would it would work well in a class like that. The way that I teach that class is I I use uh, Willard Sunderland's and Stephen Norris's book Russia's People of Empire, which mm-hmm. is a series of micro histories um, focused on individual people. I I use that book as kind of a 
a narrative spine for my teaching of the Russian Empire. And a big reason that I use it is because there are all kinds of unusual suspects in in the book. You know, it kind of seamlessly goes um, from highborn to lowborn, well known to obscure. Um, you know, kind of grand uh, policy changers to humble merchants and things like that, and and it also cuts across the entire region. And I think those are characteristics that uh, that the race book, the ideologies of race, uh, share. And I think it could be used similarly in a course to um, tell a tell a story about change over time, tell a story about various themes, um, you know, literature, um, social history, intellectual history, uh, politics, uh, in a way that, that kind of highlights um, new, new perspectives on, on stories that are otherwise might be a little bit more familiar. I mean, I don't, ever assume that the story of the Russian empire is familiar to most of my students, but, uh, it's, it's more familiar than many of the particular characters that I focus on. And I, I think it could be used effectively that way. I think it's also, I mean, the other, the other big use, I think it could be put to is to draw Russia explicitly into conversations that North American students, uh, are familiar with when it comes to the history of race, when it comes to the history of colonialism, uh, when it comes to the kind of, you know, the, the, the perennial attempt to, to figure out ways of talking about East and West without falling into, you know, prefabricated containers, uh, that, that don't explain, but just, um, categorize. And I think the book, can do that effectively as well. How does the history of race uh, help us understand how it functions in modern day, in the modern day Russian Federation? Uh, what are some of the things that, that have changed and remain the same? Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, there's a lot that's changed. Uh, there's a lot that's changed. I mean, the, the most conspicuous uh, which is directly relevant to the question of race is the the end of the universalistic uh, aspirations of the Soviet Union. So the explicitly, um, you know, transnational efforts for all of their limitations and um, you know, and, and all of that. That that was hugely important for understanding how the concept of race is going to get navigated by Soviets uh, because ultimately for, for all of the evidence of the significance of race that some of the authors in the volume find and that others have written about during the Soviet period, you know, it, it was, it was a universalistic state the, that, that never went away. Um, and so that was always, a, a limiting factor on the extent to which race was going to become an explicit component of organizing society. And that's gone. So that's, that's a huge change because now, 
you know, with <clears throat> the developments in uh, Russian nationalism and, um, you know, the, the talk that one hears of, of Russia for Russians and, and things like that, those weren't, those were developments that couldn't emerge in the same way in the Soviet period. So there, there are huge changes. I mean, I, I think as for what, what remains constant, I think that there are still the, the twin tendencies to, on the one hand, deny that race has anything to do with Russia today. So um, I don't remember the name of, of, of this guy, but he was the ambassador to the European Union from Russia back in 2010 or something. And it was, it was after, um, you know, kind of a series of pretty clearly racially motivated attacks in Moscow um, by, you know, soccer fans and that kind of thing. And he was asked about it in Belgium and they asked him, you know, what, what are you going to do about the rising racism in Russia? And, and his answer was, just we don't have racism in Russia. It was like he was, you know, totally confounded that the concept just didn't make sense. You know, it was almost kind of like the, um, you know, una sexa net uh, remark in the in the nineteen eighties, uh, where there was just this this like you know we don't have sex in in the Soviet Union, which obviously there's something being lost in translation there, right? It's not. It, it, it's, it doesn't mean what it sounds like it means, but at the same time, it is, uh, it's just a, a fundamentally different way of understanding your own society. So I think that that tendency remains uh, to a significant degree as if Russia has solved the problem of diversity. So I think there's kind of an assumption that they've inherited the colorblindness of the Soviet Union, right? All of the all of the positive aspirations of the 20th century had solved that problem. And now the Russian Federation continues that legacy. Um, and on the other hand, the, the tendency to um, assert that discrimination and, um, and so on uh, are the same in Russia as they are in Western Europe or the United States. Um, and I think partly because of the, the history that we're telling in this volume, that's, that's also patently not the case. It's not the case that um, racial conflict in Russia today has the same sort of valence as it has elsewhere in the world because of their particular history with it. So I, you know, and that often comes up in conversations outside of Russia, right? That's a, that's kind of the thing that gets lobbed back now in, in today's atmosphere from Western observers or the news or whatever, as, you know, look at race, Russia has devolved into this, um, you know, kind of an unmitigated racist uh, country. And I think that that's, that's not accurate either. So uh, yeah, I think that both of those tendencies make it difficult to have conversations and to understand what's really happening and therefore to, you know, try to affect positive change. Um, now, to conclude our discussion, uh, could you talk a little bit about what you're currently working on? I'm currently working on uh, the book on Siberian regionalism 
and the history of that movement from the 1860s through really through the 1920s uh, into the immigration. Uh, and the book uh, tries to understand how, um, how an autonomous movement makes, can make sense in an autocratic state, uh, a state that uh, obviously for, in which regional differences are very important uh, and a state that's governed according to these kind of asymmetrical and heterogeneous political units. Um, but uh, how, how this movement for autonomy can help us to understand better uh, how political power is, is wielded and deployed in autocracy. And then finally, a kind of how that changes during and after the revolution these Siberian regionalists um, began their career in the middle of the 19th century um, seeking as much autonomy as they could get. Uh, they saw themselves as uh, similar to the, the 13 United States colonies, meaning kind of destined for independence, as they thought that Siberia was a colony like the Western European col overseas colonies were. And so, you know, like Mexico, like Brazil, like the United States, it was going to eventually become independent. And then during the revolution, when the empire collapsed and dissolved into, you know, dozens of fragments, these, in some cases, the same characters. Uh, I mean, there's one individual, uh, Grigory Patanin, who was alive in 1860 and writing, and he was also alive in 1917 and writing. So there's some, there's continuity there, but the, it's largely kind of the second generation of Siberian regionalists that I'm looking at there. During the revolution, they very quickly, during the chaos and anarchy of 1918, became staunch advocates for reconstituting the entire Russian state um, because their vision of autonomy didn't make sense without the whole being reconstituted. So it, the, the 1917 moment um, kind of is interesting to me because I think it reveals what autonomy meant in the Russian empire. And it was very different than movements for national independence or um, certainly national state independence that were going on elsewhere. Thank you. That's a really fascinating preview. Um, so uh, today I've been speaking with uh, Dr. David Rainbow of the University of Houston about his 2019 edited volume, Ideologies of Race, Imperial Russia and the Soviet Union in a Global Context. That's currently available from McGill uh, Queens University Press. Thank you for listening. And Dr. Rainbow, thank you very much again for joining me today. Thanks, Diana.